0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Revelation Project podcast. So I don't know about you, but I have always been so passionate about my own birth experience. I have two grown children, and being in this line of work and loving this conversation all about the feminine, the feminine returning, awakening the feminine in men and women, disrupting the trance, and really everything that has to do with what I feel we're in right now, which is a time of great revelation. How could that conversation be complete without talking about birth? So today, I have brought a very special guest, Dr. Sarah Buckley, who's trained as a GP, a general family physician with qualifications in GP obstetrics. She's been writing and lecturing to childbirth professionals and parents since 1997, and she's the author of the internationally bestselling book, Gentle Birth, Gentle Mothering. She's currently a PhD candidate at the University of Queensland, researching oxytocin in labor and birth and the impacts of maternity care interventions. She has co-authored several papers on oxytocin in labor, birth, and breastfeeding. And she is also the mother of four grown children who were all born at home and are now in their, what, 20s and 30s, I think, and beyond. So she lives in a semi-rural outskirt of Brisbane, and she has so much to say about our female bodies and their superb design for pregnancy, birth, mothering, and beyond. So please join me in welcoming Sarah Buckley. Hi, Sarah.
1: Thanks so much, Monica. It's a pleasure to be here
0: pleasure to have this you know opportunity to talk to you about birth because as i was saying you know in the beginning in the intro i i've really been really circling all of these conversations that are about remembering and women remembering our innate Cycles, our innate power, our innate abilities. We have been so domesticated that we have forgotten that our bodies know the way. And I think that we're all starting to realize that progress has been this carrot, let's call it, that we've been chasing. And I think we're all starting to recognize that we might have overdone it and forgotten that we can have progress and, I call it the sacred and, we can also remember that we are both human and divine and that we are actually part of nature, not separate from it, and contain that very nature within us. And I wanted to really bring you on to help women kind of remember this conversation as it relates to birth, but also about remembering how to be in community for women, birthing women, birthing bodies, you know, and just really kind of come back in sisterhood around this subject as well.
1: Yeah, that's a beautiful, beautiful place to start. I mean, I think… One of the things to remember is that we are mammals. We have mammary glands. We suckle our young. And if we look at the evolution of mammals, as far as we know, mammals or placental mammals like us have been around for 163 million years. So that's how long human birth has been evolving for. So we are the, we're the peak of the success of, of birth over that 163 million years. And we are superbly designed. It's hardwired into our bodies. Every, all of our mothers, mothers, mothers way back to the first little tree shrew. Mammal gave birth successfully, and our bodies know how to do it. And yeah, as you say, there have been a lot of successes in medicine. You know, some babies survived that wouldn't have survived, certainly in, you know, when medical care is really needed. But we've also, as you say, kind of overstepped things really and started to interfere with the natural processes because birth is such a tender, such a specific, such a critical, such an essential part of life for all mammals. And now, there's certain conditions that we need to give birth, and I think if we take it back to those very kind of basic conditions, that would really help us to relearn and to understand how birth can be for ourselves as women giving birth, and in our culture as well. Because you know, every mammal seeks a safe place to give birth. If you've had a dog or a cat, or seen on YouTube an elephant give birth or something, you'll know that they seek a private, safe place. They're usually surrounded by members of their social groups, individuals that they know, and. For Example: Elephants, when they give birth, they have a circle of elephant helpers who sway in time with the labouring female and soothe her with their trunks, and obviously form a formidable barrier. You know, and that's that's the conditions that we need to give birth. We need to feel private and safe because, you know, for most of that 63 million years, we've given birth out there in the wilderness, right? It's not a very safe place to give birth, especially for a birthing mama. You know, if you've given birth yourself, you know that you can there can be strange noises, strange smells that that would attract any predator. So the the safety of the labouring woman in an evolutionary sense and in a sense that's hardwired into our bodies depends on her being in a situation where she feels private, safe and unobserved. So, that's our mammalian heritage and when we're in that situation, the whole thing is going to unfold most optimally.
0: I love this reminder about private and safe and when I think of how other mammals give birth. And even what you just said about the elephants, you know, swaying in time and surrounding, there's, that's such a beautiful imagery. And I think that, you know, I want to make sure that I'm really sensitive to this conversation, because as you said, there have been so many advances and so many sweet babes who've survived that may not have otherwise done so. But I also know that medical intervention has really, really, you know, created the opposite, almost like an unsafe space for women to really birth. And I wondered if, you know, you had thoughts on that to share or where you thought we've kind of overdone it and where we kind of need to start thinking ourselves and feeling ourselves kind of back in harmony with nature.
1: Yes, well, as I said, the, those core conditions of feeling private safe, and when I say unobserved, I don't mean we've all got to go and give birth in a cave or by by ourselves, because as I said, with elephants, some animals do want to have lots of individuals there. And I think women are like this. So, thinking about well, how do I feel safe is a good place to start. You know, for some women, they want to be by themselves in labour. For some women, especially in some cultural groups, you know, you, you only feel safe with lots of people around you. So, that's a good kind of thought to have before you go into labour. And then, and when you're planning your birth situation, and this is a this is a big hint, really, you know, the whole hormonal orchestration of birth that we'll talk about of, of having a baby is really almost identical to the hormone orchestration of making a baby. So, actually, if you think about the conditions you need to make a baby private, safe, and unobserved, that's really the kind of conditions you need to have a baby. And if you're going to hospital, it, it's not bad news because you can actually. Mm, you can actually look after your primitive brain, because that's what we're talking about. That's the limbic system, the middle layer of the brain that's kind of scanning around all the time in normal life, but particularly in labor, is this a safe place to give birth? So, you know, for your primitive brain, it's sensory information like the smells, the sights. So, you know, just some things that help women is to wear a blindfold, you know, have headphones, bury your head in a pillow, all that sensory stuff that helps you to shut out that not private, safe and, and unobserved kind of information. And of course, the best thing you can do if you're going to hospital is have your own midwife or your own doula because all the science says that your chances of having interventions is much lower, your chance of having a normal birth is much higher. And it really is the same thing, you know, when you are when you have someone else there that you have a trusting relationship with, you know, you're going to feel more private, you're going to feel more safe, you're going to feel more unobserved and they can be that circle of elephants for you. So, yeah, that's one of my hints is, um, you know, pay attention to your senses if you are going into a hospital um, and take your own doula, your own supportive birth companion, someone that you've started a relationship with in pregnancy and you know them and they know you and partners and whoever else you want. But I would say a doula is a really important part of your birth support team if you're giving birth in hospital. And of course, the other option, like I did with my four babies, is to give birth at home because almost by definition, you're going to feel more private, safe and unobserved in your own home. And you also have more intrinsic power over who gets to be there, right? It's your space. I noticed that when I was a GP actually, I used to go and visit people at home sometimes, do home visits. And I'd notice that the things I do when people come into my clinic, like I just presume I could put my stethoscope on them or take their temperature. And when I was in their home, I was actually more you know, tentative about those things, like I was aware it was their space. So that's one of the advantages of home birth is you have automatically the kind of mammalian conditions that you need to give birth. And of course, it's why home birth, you know, that women who plan a home, have much lower rates of intervention and and very good outcomes as well.
0: Yeah, I love that you, you kind of pointed to that change in dynamic when you were at somebody else's space. It's like you're taking her lead almost, you know, and, and that is kind of, I think, where there's a lot of, I'll call it like upside down behavior, where I think so many of us at least in the US have I feel like so many women have kind of forgotten that we we get to have a voice in our experience and I think that's coming back that overswing of the pendulum where I know like in my mother's generation it just was not that way or at least in my understanding of how it Went kind of in the 70s. But I do feel like more and more, you know, mothers are planning their birth, possibly through doulas and midwives, and considering having home births. Where even when I was pregnant with my babies, that was very still frowned upon. And I feel like it's becoming more normal now which I'm really happy about because I do feel that I've met so many women who have had actually traumatic birth experiences because of the interventions, I think, that have been either because they've been declared high risk. I know I was declared high risk at age 35 geriatric, I think is what they, what they called me. But anyway, you know, there's there's a variety of reasons why. But I also wanted to find out and get curious about your own passion. Was it because you had your kids at home that you became passionate about it? Or tell me more.
1: Yes. Well, I was always a bit interested in birth. My father was actually an obstetrician and my grandfather in a small town in New Zealand where I grew up was actually Uh, We used to go out on horseback and attend women giving birth in the bush and he was actually famous for his skills with a particular kind of forceps which saved people's lives in the pre cesarean days. So you could say it's in my blood and then also actually on my mother's side, my mother's grandmother was actually a granny midwife in the area and she attended the births of my mother and her siblings. So it's it's on both sides of my family. I couldn't avoid it. But yeah, I was also kind of influenced by my sister-in-law, my husband's sister who is a home birth midwife in New Zealand. I I was lucky enough, you know, I did my GP obstetric training in hospitals, but I also had the opportunity to support some friends giving birth at home and I could see, you know, the qualitative differences and I also knew and this was something that for me as a doctor was that, you know, when when you go into hospital as a as a healthcare provider, you often get treated differently. You can either get like kind of people don't know what to do with you so they kind of undertreat you or they overtreat you and that's been the case in my family. I've had family members, you know, have serious illnesses from being both undertreated and overtreated. So yeah, having a home birth was a choice for a whole lot of reasons. And then once I had my babies at home, whoa, like a whole world opened up to me and... I guess what, what it really triggered in me, Monica, like it, it raised a whole lot of questions, like I'd been taught this about birth and then I had this particular experience and I was like, how do those things even fit together in the same room? And then the other curious thing was that when I gave birth to my first baby, we lived in a small house in central Melbourne. And my neighbor had three children. She was a great source of information and, and wisdom for me. And she lent me a like a bassinet, like a cradle to put my baby in. So I had this room set up with the baby and the cradle and everything. But once I'd given birth, like at home with my baby and who had never been separated from me, like I just couldn't put my baby in another room or I couldn't have a more than an arm's length away. Like this incredible protective hormones I know now kicked in. And I was really curious, like what happened to me? Like I was kind of going in one direction. And suddenly through those few hours of labor, I was in a completely different place. Like what happened in my brain? Cause I could feel something happened in my brain and I became passionate, I guess, about what what is it that happened? What is it that happens during the processes of labor and birth that changes a woman, you know? And It's basically the same thing that happens in all mammals. It basically switches on that instinctive mothering. That means that we survive, our babies survive, all our other mammalian cousins survive because of this incredible protection, protectiveness that we get. And it's not just protectiveness, actually. Um, you know, it's like you'd, you'd bite anyone that tried to take your baby away. That's part of it. But there's also, and this is what I discovered through the research that I've done is that the hormones of labor and birth and particularly the peaks of oxytocin and those last of labour and birth, actually turn on the pleasure and reward centres in the brain, the dopamine centres in the brain. And that's what has every mammalian mother, you know, give the dedicated care that every mammalian newborn needs. We're rewarded and motivated inside our brain at that moment that we meet our babies. So, we've got this powerful rewarded pleasure centre activation and then we get the sensory, you know, I'm talking about all mammals here, we get the sensory information from our babies like the sight, the smell, the taste because most mammals lick their babies and then that gets kind of, we say, fired and wide, connected up in our brain with our baby and our baby starts off being like this source of immense pleasure and reward. You know, I, I say it's like the best first date ever <laughs> when you meet your baby because you're just so turned on to to fall in love with your baby, you know, and, and and for me with my children, like it kind of got more and more the more babies I had and I think it's something that happens in the brain as well. It's kind of hard to stop because it, it gets to be so pleasurable. And the last birth, it was like, I really felt like I'd won a lottery twice, like I had this incredible experience of giving birth, and then I had the baby as well, and it was almost like incomprehensible to me that these two things could coexist that, that was so powerfully rewarding.
0: Yeah, and what you're pointing to is something that has been termed like ecstatic birth, correct?
1: Yes, yes. I, I, wrote, I wrote the book about that or the, the article about that in
0: 2002, I think, in
1: Mothering Magazine. Yeah, Yeah, from my own experience, really. And it is, it's designed to be a pleasurable experience, or at least when the contractions start, it's designed to fully overtake us with that onslaught, that that effusion, that euphoria. You know, when we met our baby for the first time, you know, and it's not just humans, it's actually part of, you know, the mammalian blueprint for labour, because every, as I said, every mammalian mother needs that, you know, most mammals, some of them wouldn't have given birth before. And it's like, what's happening to me in my body? And obviously, they don't want to have an aversive reaction to their babies otherwise nothing's going to survive right so it's so important that these reward and pleasure centres get turned on through the processes of labour and birth and then um, the new mothers meet their babies and then this activation happens that's going to motivate because mothering is a big job right for any species right Mice, rats, they've got to go and forage. I mean, it's, you know, you're using a lot of energy through the suckling. So, you know, we need this, we need this input. We need to be rewarded and motivated to give that dedicated care.
0: Yeah. I want to go back to something that you were, I think you were pointing to and make sure that, you know, I really kind of underline what I heard you say, which was I make up that when you were pregnant with your first, you were kind of going down one track. And so was that kind of track more, I'm going to the baby's going to sleep in this room, I'm going to sleep in this room, like this is the way it's going to be kind of thing. And that's the way you saw other mothers kind of behave with their babies, the ones that had 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 their babies in a hospital? Or do I have that wrong?
1: Um, Yeah, that was, well, that was conventional parenting at the time and it still is, you know, like you have your baby in one room in a nursery, which by the way, she isn't even a safe Thing to have a baby sleep in a separate room. The safer thing in terms of, you know, SIDS is to have the baby at least in the same room as you. But the convention has been you have a nursery, you have the cradle or the crib, you put your baby in the crib, you sleep in another room, you get up at night. When your baby cries, you feed your baby, put the baby back down and go back to your bed. So that was kind of like my own cultural expectation because that's what everybody did. And when I, when I decided to sleep with my babies, which I slept with all of them, it was quite a, you know, it wasn't all that easy really. Certain people gave me a hard time, the maternal and child health nurse, you know, like it wasn't a normal, it wasn't a culturally sanctioned <laughs> choice, you could say. But it was really, and it was my instincts that kicked in. And I mean, there's a whole conversation about co-sleeping. But basically, you know, if you think about those 60, 100, 163 million years of mammalian evolution, you know, if you put your baby just down to sleep somewhere else, the baby wouldn't be there in the morning, right? So, it, it, you know, it, we're, we're Hard wide to to hold our babies close, you know, night and day, and it's an instinct that that we have to hold our babies, to pick our babies up when they cry. So yeah, yeah, and then, and then and then as as you say, that's that's what happened for me when I gave birth to to my firstborn Emma. Like I had all that cultural conditioning and expectations, and I even had the crib, and then I, I couldn't do that. I couldn't actually put my baby that far away from me. I did, didn't feel safe to me. Yeah,
0: right. And the difference, and and again, it's it's so interesting right because I f- all of the my friends I know that had their babies at home also ended up co-sleeping and I think that what you're and what so much of your research and so much of your expertise is around is this cascade of hormones and this feedback loop that actually is naturally created through the birth process but when that gets interrupted, it actually interrupts almost like our our in our instinctual process that would then dictate our attachment to our baby. Is that right?
1: Well that that's what I observe. That's what I observed in myself, certainly, you know, like the 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 processes that I went through in labour and birth changed my brain, so that I actually couldn't parent in that culturally sanctioned way. Like I couldn't have my baby that far away from me. And as you say, I do see other people do it like that. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong or intrinsically unsafe, whatever, about normal parenting or having your baby in another room. But what I'm saying is that that's not re- not our mammalian blueprint. Our mammalian blueprint is actually to have our babies close to us, because that's what's kept our babies safe for all these millions of years. Of course, we you know we didn't live in houses and all those kind of things, and predators could take our babies at night. But it's still hardwired into us, and it's also hardwired into our babies. You know, our babies know that if they're not in touch with an adult, that they're not safe, and they'll usually cry when you put them down. Right? <laughs> We're trying to go against all these millions of years of of, um, of blueprint. Yeah, and and as you say, that starts in labor and birth, and it starts in labor and birth because, well, of course, that's how motherhood happens in all species, right? <laughs> mm Hmm it only happens through for well, these millions of years through the processes of labor and birth so you know um and that we, we could call it bonding. That bonding that happens, you know, is is not just a kind of feel good add on. It's actually an intrinsic part of species survival. So that's why it's so strongly hardwired into into the brain of all mammals, including women. And what happens in labour and birth? I mean, that other thing I talk about is you know we've got birth, we've got the the switching on of bonding, but of course lactation or breastfeeding for all mammals, mammary glands like all mammals by definition suckle their young. You now that all get has to get switched on at that moment of birth as well. So birth isn't just about birth birth is about survival of the species and mother and baby have to survive the birth and thrive and go on to have more offspring who survive and thrive and that includes successful lactation that includes this dedicated maternal care that's optimized through bonding through reward and pleasure um, center activation in the brain and as I said all this happens in the processes of labor and birth including a whole lot of preparations that happen before labor and birth you know I my analogy I say labor and birth is like I say the Royal wedding. You know, this is well in the English wedding of William and Kate. You know, and it's like it, it's not just that event; it's all the preparation that happens beforehand. And if like, William and Kate had turned up at Westminster Cathedral like a week beforehand, it wouldn't have been the same, right? Although all the all the, the all the the all the preparations wouldn't have been complete, or a day before, even an hour before, right? Because Mother Nature, the superb design that we have, is has this timeline, yeah, and. Mm-hmm. And there's a magical moment. And actually, I've got to tell you this, we don't actually know what causes that magical moment. That's the onset of labor. You know, if I could tell you what causes the onset of labor in humans, I'd get a Nobel Prize because we don't actually know. And you can imagine how much research goes into that. But on the other hand, we're kind of stepping over that in lots of ways with induction, with pre-labor caesareans, without really understanding what it is that makes the baby fully ready and makes the mother fully ready. And those preparations include preparations for a safe birth, for pre protection of the baby through those strong contractions um, and then for preparation for breastfeeding and bonding as well. so it's it's not just birth, it's actually a whole package of species survival that we're talking about.
0: yeah, I mean it really I, I can't help but sit here in my in my questions <laughs> and and you know and think of all of the questions that are coming up for me around, you know, just how, Different the world might be if we were to allow women to have babies in the most natural way. It's like you think about all of the, I'll call them unintended consequences, because I think there's part of me that cannot get my head around why. That process would be by design, that we would interrupt that process in women over and over and over again. But I do know, you know, the history is his story, not her story. And that, you know, if women had been kind of in charge of modern medicine and the way it's kind of all unfolded, that things might be very different.
1: Yes, I think, I think there's a whole lot of ways of looking at birth that are happening now that are kind of a bit in opposition to our female biology, like trying to make birth efficient, like trying to put a clock on birth. I mean, birth, the space of labour and birth is a totally timeless space. It's a, we could even say multidimensional space, you know, women report. A liminal. Yeah, liminal, exactly. And how do you put a time on that, you know, and and some of these things might have made sense at one point, like some of those were actually formulated to detect women who were. Having problems in labor and birth, like an obstructed labor, there were there were times when we didn't get enough vitamin D, and we had you know some pelvic limitations, and then those things were life threatening. Certainly, that's been true in the past. But applying those things now to every woman with starting the clock, you know, for labor and birth, really doesn't make a lot of sense in terms of the processes of labor and birth. And saying every woman should give birth at this particular you know forty weeks, or every woman should have a labor that's this length, is you know kind of like saying every baby should walk on their on their first birthday. I mean, natural processes aren't generally like that. There's a lot of leeway, and especially when we're talking about labor and birth, because of that critical um, importance of, of women feeling private and safe. And so, you know, it's such a common story that women are laboring at home and everything's going well and labor's getting going, and then they move into hospital, which has all these you know, an evolutionary environment, we could say, you know, people she doesn't never met before, a hospital smell, you know, clanging sounds. I mean, it's just not kind to the limbic system. It's just not what, what supports, what reassures our evolutionary brain, you could say. And then often labour stops, yeah. And then, you know, and then, because the clock starts ticking, you know, women get put, given something to start make labour go faster or to start it up again. And then, you know, all, all kinds of things happen because of the clock. In fact, there's a there's a beautiful, I don't know if you're old enough to know, Sheila Kitzinger, who is a birth advocate, a childbirth educator, actually an anthropologist in the UK. And she called the clock an unevaluated piece of obstetric technology. So-
0: oh my goodness, Yeah. <laughs> i mean it's it's ludicrous, you know, when you really think about the implications of again standardizing birth mm. standardizing and generalizing it and making it efficient mm. and that again there's a way that the very kind of linear masculine way of kind of looking at it without really considering the rhythms of the feminine, the needs of the feminine, the values of the feminine, the feminine body. I mean, uh, one of my earliest podcasts was actually with a doctor who was doing all of the research and recognizing that it had all been done based on an average Male body, that there was actually very little research or development around medicine having to do with actual women. Mm. And so when you start kind of adding up all of these pieces, you start realizing, you know, that this kind of creates a cascade of consequences that then leads to a host of other issues. When we interrupt this process. So I wondered if you could tell, you know, just our listeners more about the actual role of oxytocin in labor and about birth and this feedback loop and what you've discovered. Because I feel like we've laid the foundation now for kind of the, the gem, I'll call it of this conversation and why this conversation is so powerful.
1: Yeah, so there's um, an increasing knowledge about oxytocin. It was actually first discovered, it's a hormone, so it's actually made in our brain and the hypothalamus stored in the pituitary. And it was first discovered as oxytocin tocin births are the hormone that makes birth go fast. But then a whole explosion of research about oxytocin has happened in the last 20 years or so and all of its roles outside of childbirth. You know, it's a feel-good hormone, it's the cuddle hormone, it's the hormone of monogamy, it's a hormone of trust. Um, Yeah, a whole lot of it in it. A whole lot of physical benefits it has involved in a whole lot of cancers. There's research in pretty much any psychological or psychiatric condition you could think of that They're um, looking at in relation to oxytocin and oxytocin treatment. So there's all of that. But what we know inside of childbirth is that it causes the rhythmic contractions of labor through its release from the brain. It goes down into the body. It goes to the uterus and it actually finds what we call the oxytocin receptors. I and mean, every hormone works like this. It has a specific receptor and it's like putting a key into a lock. So, when oxytocin is released from the brain and finds these oxytocin receptors, which are actually on the outside of the uterine muscle cell, the key goes into the lock, turns the turns the lock and that sends a chemical message into the cell saying contract. And what's really interesting about oxytocin, and this is one of the findings we had from some of the research we did, was that oxytocin levels are actually not that high when women go into birth. You'd think, you know, it's the hormone that makes birth go fast, it causes contractions, you'd have a lot of it. But in fact, you actually don't because what's happening in the, the woman's body, and this is research done on women, um, humans, some of it, the research I'm quoting is done on animals, but in women, you can actually document the increase in oxytocin receptors as they go through pregnancy and it starts off something like receptor density outside of pregnancy, say one, gets to about a 1,000 um, in late pregnancy and goes up to about 3,000 um, by the time you get to early labor. So, this massive increase in the uterine sensitivity to oxytocin. So, at that physiological onset of labor, when labor starts naturally is what I mean, you get this little bit of oxytocin released from the brain that starts to cause these rhythmic contractions of labor and they build up and get stronger and stronger. I call it the snowball of labor, you know, labor starts small, becomes bigger and bigger and in the end becomes virtually unstoppable. If you've had a baby, you know what I'm talking about. Um, Sometimes you'd like to stop it, but you can't. Or sometimes, you know, it takes a while to gather momentum. But once it gathers momentum, it really kind of keeps keeps rolling. And the reason that it, it happens like this is because oxytocin has positive feedback loops Um, So, in most of biology, we have negative feedback loops, which contribute to what we call homeostasis. So, we're all sitting here, like our blood pressure's even, our heart rate's even. If we get a fright, um, our heart rate might go up and then we've got these mechanisms that detect that and bring it down. So, that's a negative feedback loop. But in in labor, this positive feedback loop that fuels the snowball of labor, what happens is, is that the oxytocin released from the brain into the uterus, causing strong contractions the sensations of those contractions are fed back by a specific nerve pathway to the brain. And when that message gets back to the brain, it actually says release more oxytocin, not less, release more oxytocin. So then you get more oxytocin, go to the uterus, stronger contractions, more sensations, and this positive feedback loop that keeps labor going. And obviously, the more sensitive the uterus is to oxytocin, the more this feedback loop is going to work. And what happens is it may labor gets bigger and bigger. It becomes unstoppable. And in the the pushing stage, you might have noticed this yourself, you get very, very strong sensations, right? And that is making this feedback loop called the Ferguson reflex very strong. So, a lot of oxytocin release, very strong contractions, more oxytocin release. And it's really designed to have an efficient labor and birth and then especially have an efficient pushing stage. Because if we go back to our evolutionary model, you know, any animal giving birth in the wild, the pushing stage is the most vulnerable stage. Like you can't really run away, you can't really defend yourself. So it's all designed to have an effective and efficient labor and birth and especially an effective and efficient pushing stage. And what's brilliant about this model is that it's not just the oxytocin fueling the contractions of labor because at the same time it's released from the brain It's actually released into the brain. So, that's how it turns on these reward and pleasure centers that we're talking about. But it also has a calming, soothing effect in the brain. And imagine, as I said, any mammal that's never given birth before, it's like, what the hell is going on here? And there's this calming, soothing oxytocin release in the brain um, that actually actually switches on the pleasure and reward centers, but actually reduces pain as well. So, lots of benefits to oxytocin in the brain. There's some way we've figured out from the research that we've done that those peaks of oxytocin also activate um, the mother's skin, make it more sensitive to the touches of her newborn baby. Because what happens at that moment of birth, we've got these peak snowball, peak levels of oxytocin and push the baby out. But actually, the oxytocin levels go up even higher in that first hour after birth, even up to 10 times higher in some women. And that happens because of the interactions between the mother and the baby. If you haven't seen breast crawl, I recommend that you Google breast crawl because um Human babies, like every other mammalian species, can actually crawl up the mother's body and find the nipple and self attach. It took us a while to learn that. We were a bit slow with humans. We thought we were kind of different to other mammals, but human babies can do that. And they find the nipple because it smells like amniotic fluid. They've got all these reflexes that actually help them crawl up the body. And then once they find the mother's nipple, they actually massage it with their hand and eventually suckle. And all of those things cause even more oxytocin release in the mother. But one of the things is they only cause that extra oxytocin release if she's had those full peaks of oxytocin through physiological birth. So, that's kind of Mother Nature's superb design and these peaks of oxytocin after the birth are also critical because not only does the oxytocin switch on the mother's reward and pleasure centers, reduce pain, etc., but also it actually keeps, the, makes the mother's body warm up. It actually vasodilates, open, opens up the blood vessels on the new mother's chest wall and Pulses heat to her baby, and at the same time, oxytocin uterine causes uterine contractions that seal up the the, the mother's uterus after the placenta is peeled off and stop bleeding. So, all of those things um, happen through those peaks of oxytocin after the birth, which also depend on the peaks of oxytocin during labor and birth.
0: Wow! I mean, I'm just, I'm just like, wow. <laughs> If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, then you've probably heard me share about my life-changing experience in Megan Joe Wilson's Rockstar Camp. This experience changed everything for me by getting to the root of my own trance of unworthiness, which had so much to do with healing my voice and believing that what I had to say mattered. So the Revelation Project podcast was actually born out of this experience at Rockstar Camp, and this podcast is now in the top 1.5% of all podcasts worldwide just three years later. So I'm super excited to let you know that the doors for this extraordinary experience are reopening for women like you who are looking for a radically different kind of feminine leadership training that will transform the way you see yourself, your body, and other women. Rockstar Camp is a journey in sisterhood that ultimately places you, yes you, on stage to sing in the spotlight with a professional band behind you and an audience in front of you. If this excites and terrifies you, then lean in because it's a sign that there is a big part of you that's ready to break free and shine. Your voice matters and it's time to stop swallowing your truth. It's time to stop floundering and make a bigger impact and to step into greater visibility so that you can share your brilliance where it matters most. And the best part you don't have to be a trained singer or a musician to join. God knows I wasn't. Meg and Joe is going to coach you every step of the way. So to apply for this extraordinary adventure, go to RockStarCamp.live, where you'll get all of the details plus photos and videos of women like you who followed their intuition and said, yes. There's no telling what will happen on your journey, but what I do know is that it will be revelatory. Go to rockstarcamp.live to apply now. I am sitting with just the realization that, you know, at any stage here, that any part of this cascade of events is interrupted, or is interfered with that that actually creates a gap in the feedback loop. Is that correct?
1: Yes, it does. It can create a gap, and obviously, if a woman has—and look, sometimes interventions are needed. I'm not at, at all against interventions, and in this model I'm producing, I'm saying, does, is not against interventions. Sometimes they're life-saving for mother, life-saving for the baby. Right? Like a pre cesarean can be can be critical, but. Obviously, when there's a cesarean done before labor even starts, there's a big hormonal gap for the mother. She hasn't had all this preparation. She hasn't had labor and birth. She hasn't had those peaks of oxytocin. And in fact, after a pre cesarean, she doesn't even release oxytocin and skin-to-skin contact with her baby. So a whole lot of hormonal gaps happening there. So I think, you know, when interventions are needed, we need to know, yes, there is a gap and then how can we fill that in? And basically, <laughs> how to fill a hormonal gap is skin-to-skin releases oxytocin and breastfeeding, you know, and, and if you think about our evolutionary past, you know, or any other mammal, like there's nowhere else for the baby to be except on the mother's body. That's the safest place. And as I said, the mother literally, Pulses heat to keep her newborn baby warm and, and the baby will be warmer than anything we can wrap the baby in. Anything we can put the baby under the mother's body is superbly designed for that. We say mutual regulation to keep her baby warm um, after, after, after birth. And so, yeah, there's, so that there, there's those kind of hormonal gaps. The other, um, intervention that causes a significant hormonal gap is the epidural. And this is going to be bad news for some people, but the reason the epidural causes such a significant hormonal gap is because it's so effective. And if you remember, I talked about that feedback loop where the sensations from the uterus feedback to the brain to release oxytocin, the When an epidural is in place, because it's so effective at at reducing pain, that feedback loop is is um doesn't doesn't work. You know, the feedback loop gets turned off, so there's not that impetus in the brain to release oxytocin into the body, and actually, oxytocin levels go down. Labor can slow down or even stop, and then we've called this caused this hormonal gap, and we give synthetic oxytocin to fill in that hormonal gap. But the hormonal gap actually can't be the synthetic oxytocin actually can't fill in the hormonal gap in the mother's brain because the synthetic oxytocin we give into the body doesn't go into the brain. So, yeah, epidurals cause a significant hormonal gap and we know that because we can measure that oxytocin levels don't go up or they even go down when a woman has an epidural and then there's a synthetic oxytocin. We also know from some studies that, for example, the other thing that happens, I haven't mentioned this, through these hormonal peaks of labor and birth, and this is, this is from studies of women giving birth, is women actually change their personalities. And this is kind of a little bit what I was talking about with myself. You know, women report being more social, being less anxious, less tense. I mean, these are all kind of... Of oxytocin effects, um, and when women have had an epidural or pre cesarean, obviously they don't get those personality changes either. So something should have happened in the brain that didn't happen. There's so there's a hormonal gap there as well.
0: And what are like the consequences of that gap? Like, and I I understand what you're saying is that 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 there are ways that that then doesn't play out by. For example, releasing or injecting the oxy- oxytocin into the brain. So like, what are some of the additional consequences that may happen as a result of that gap?
1: Yes. Well, this hasn't really been studied very well. As I said, there's that personality study that showed that when women had had an epidural, they didn't get the personality changes. You wouldn't expect, and this is also from animal studies, the same level of pleasure and reward center activation that would happen through a physiological labor and birth. And that actually has been um, researched in relation to pre-labor caesarean. So, they've got two groups of women, one who'd been through a physiological birth with these peaks of oxytocin that we're talking about, and one group of women who'd had a pre-labor, cesarean. So, not only no labor and birth, but also none. they didn't have the full preparation for labor and birth by definition because they didn't go into labor. So, they wheeled these women into an MRI machine two to four weeks after giving birth and played them the sound of their baby crying. And inside this MRI machine, they could see what happened inside the woman's brain, what parts of the brain lit up. So, after a physiological birth, the reward and pleasure centers lit up, the alertness centers lit up, this is my baby, I need to do something. And the empathy centers lit up. And that didn't happen to the same extent in the women that had had a pre-labor cesarean. And it really kind of illustrates everything we're talking about. There's not just a hormonal gap in the body, but there's also a hormonal gap in the brain. So, you know, there's a can't say what that experience would be for women uh, but some women have described after a cesarean they kind of didn't know the baby was theirs, they didn't fall in love with their baby as much as they did with a baby that was born naturally. I'm not saying this is a universal experience at all or this is inevitable, I'm not saying any any of those things but there's some kind of head start that mother nature provides us to reward and motivate us that's missing in that circumstance so it's a hormonal gap.
0: And what I'm hearing is that there's like a, a detachment and again, you know, I, I understand that we're generalizing, and I also understand that these gaps can be filled. That the body is amazing, and that there's also other things, physiological uh, opportunities. I think that present, such as breastfeeding, etc., that allow the mother and the baby to bond. But you know, I think so much, you know, the big buzzword is around secure attachment. And so I immediately kind of think about how many of us, you know, may not have had that opportunity to have that secure attachment with our own mothers, because our own mothers, right, like, I know that my mother had an epidural for each child. And I know that my mother didn't breastfeed, for example. So it's interesting because I don't think it's like when we know better we can do better and so I think that part of this is my curiosity around you know what you are really wanting women to know and and I'm making up that part of what you've researched and the education that you're sharing with us is so that women can make choices that understand kind of that, yes, there's pain relief and there's kind of these unintended consequences to interrupting the process. And and I think my reason for really wanting to create this conversation with you, Sarah, is around helping women understand the alternatives and, and because I think so many women don't understand that there are choices, but also that there is this research available that actually might have them choose differently if they could.
1: Yes. And I think um, you do, in our current maternity care system, generally, you have to think a little bit outside the box. You have to have some awareness, ask some questions, otherwise you're going to go down the mainstream. And the mainstream is a high intervention model of care where increasing numbers of women have epidurals, there's increasing cesarean rates, and all of those things cause hormonal gaps. So, it's really having that awareness. And as I mentioned before, you can choose a model of care that has lower rates of all of those things we've talked about, which is is midwifery care, which is having a doula, which is home birth. And and generally, I'd say to women, start off with a low technology model of care because you can always move up if need be. But once you're up there, once you've got your private OB in a private hospital, you can't suddenly choose to have a home birth, right? So, yeah, and it's kind of respect for our biology, really, that I'm also talking about that, you know, we've got this whole idea that we can kind of do this new, improved kind of birth. But actually, when we do that, we're losing something as well, you know, and we're causing these hormonal gaps. But I want to say something else about hormonal gaps because I'm aware that there's probably listeners are thinking, "Oh my goodness me, what happened. So um, the hormonal gaps can be filled. And if we go back to what I was saying before about the, the magical moment of the onset of labor and birth, you know, the baby's fully ready, the mother's fully ready, These hormonal signals that get passed backwards and forwards to the through the placenta that coordinates the onset of labor at that maximum point of readiness. So so the even if labor and birth are very short, you know, like my last leg was an hour and a half, right? Still, all of the things that we're talking about will into play because we've made the most, it's like a window of opportunity or biologically we call it an early sensitive period Yeah, where all of these things can happen because all the groundwork's been laid. Now, if we have a hormonal gap, we've missed something important. We've missed that window of opportunity. Those peaks of oxytocin didn't happen before you met your baby, didn't happen at the end of labor and birth. And you can fill in that hormonal gap. As I said, skin-to-skin and breastfeeding is the formula um, with no kind of limit to how much of them you do. The more, the better but you do have to be patient because if you miss that window of opportunity, filling in that hormonal gap is going to be a much less efficient and effective process. So, for example, um, that um, study I mentioned about the epidural women, the women who had an epidural not getting that shift in personality. So, in that study, they followed those women up at four to six months and the women who'd been exclusively breastfeeding did get those personality changes. Um, Just another anecdote is a mama who had um, two normal births and then had a pre-labor cesarean and and she said, when I got my baby after the cesarean, the baby felt different, which is a whole nother conversation about the baby. But she was right. She was in a different hormonal state. The baby was in a different hormonal state. And she said, my instinct was to be skin to skin with my baby. And after three days of skin to skin, my baby felt the same. So that's kind of like a just a warning really that if you you know, filling in hormonal gaps is really important and skin to skin and breastfeeding will do it, but you're gonna have to do more of it than you would have had to do or than you would have Naturally done following a physiological labor and birth. So all these things can be healed. And I just want to add one more thing about that because, you know, as you say, when we know better, we do better. We're all in this system. It's very hard to avoid, you know, that number of women who have a totally natural labor and birth is, I don't know, usually 10%, 20% in the system that we're in at the moment. So it's very difficult. And if we don't know to fight for it, if we don't know about hormonal gaps, we're just going to go down that pathway. And sometimes we end up in a situation that we didn't want to be in and we end up with uh you know, at birth, we didn't want or even birth trauma. As you say, there's a, there's an increasing acknowledgement and, and understanding that birth can be a traumatic experience for some women. And then that is to take that into your mothering is kind of the opposite of mother nature's superb design, right? Mother nature wants us to be rewarded and happy and relaxed as we go into mothering and breastfeeding and all of those things. And if we come up with trauma, that's like a total inverse of, of what's supposed to happen. Um, so I just want to say that, you know, be kind to ourselves. Um, understand the situation we're in, have someone you can talk to. There certainly are are more counselors that can help people through birth trauma. I really recommend a book called How to Heal a Bad Birth written by my friends here in Brisbane and also the other thing I want to say is that and this is a whole other conversation as well but you know the baby does have their own experience of birth you know somewhere in our mind body that is encoded people can remember birth experiences children especially between age about in my observation 2 and 8 or 10 can actually come out with spontaneous birth memories and so you know you can actually have a conversation with your child about birth you know like what happened what was your experience what you wanted what happened you know and it can be an incredibly affirming and powerful conversation to have with the child of any age so it's never too late to have a have a good birth I guess I could say but it's never too late to heal those relationships and just one final comment is you know we were talking about the kind of new improved kind of efficient model of birth that's kind of masculine thinking and then we have the feminine model of birth and one of the reasons birth is such a feminine process not just because of our female bodies but it's also about relationship you know we're we're forming that first and most critical relationship in the world you know the relationship between a mother and a child that's what what keeps every species alive right so and oxytocin is not accidentally a hormone of relationship so it seems like the more relationship we add (laughs) the better birth goes so it Duel is a relationship, a midwife's a relationship, you know, models of care. Like there's a brilliant model of care here in Brisbane where Indigenous women have uh, uh, culturally safe relationships and their, their outcomes are incredible. Like their preterm birth rate is 50% less than it usually is. So, you know, birth is relationship, oxytocin is relationship, and and fostering relationship is so critical in pregnancy, labor, and birth. I
0: love everything that we've Brought up, and I really, really appreciate your sensitivity because I'm noticing myself just really struggling to ask the questions. And of course, I'm somebody who is always encouraging my listeners to say yes to the mess. And I'm noticing how sensitive I am around this conversation. And I think it's because our birth stories are so precious, you know, and our children are so precious. And the last thing we want to do, or that I want to do as the host of this conversation, is to create <laughs> trauma awareness, right? Or, or trauma through awareness. And yet, one of the things I'm also needing to acknowledge is that that has been what this unbecoming process has been for me. And I, t- I'll let you in on kind of this idea of unbecoming, Sarah, but it's like, I feel like part of what I had been missing as a woman it's like I was so acutely aware of my own suffering and I felt so isolated, so alone, exhausted, overwhelmed, all of these really isolated, just, you know, and and I got to this point in my life where I had become what I thought everybody wanted me to be. I had followed all of the things, I had done all the things and it wasn't until I actually saw and started to understand this overarching system that that we'll call patriarchy or the dominator or control culture, which is kind of all in this realm of efficiency, production, industrialization, the emphasis and the glorification of the modern world, but at the expense of what is feminine, what is balance, what is harmony, what is natural, what is cyclical, what is, you know, and so I think that what I'm getting at is that this conversation even brings up grief in me, you know, and that that grief in so many cases is an unavoidable byproduct of awakening to some of these choices or alternatives that I I did the best I could when I was there. And I think that's why I'm also so passionate about having these conversations is because I wish I had known. Do you know what I mean? Like, I wish I had known.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, it's one of the hallmarks of parenting, really. Like, if we knew then what we know now. (laughs) And I think we've just got to be really, really generous and sensitive and kind to ourselves around that because there's all kinds of decisions that we make that to some extent, It's very difficult to make different decisions, like about parenting I just described, like trying to sleep with my baby against all the advice and all the things that people said to me about it. Like it's really hard to go against the grain and, you know, kudos to people who do that. And and I don't have any, you know, judgment at all about anyone that doesn't because it's so hard. It's like taking the red pill, isn't it? It's like actually realizing that, you know, this all of these things that we've been told that, you know, all these interventions have made birth safer. And if you make, if you choose a home birth, it'll be dangerous. If you sleep with your baby, it'll be dangerous. You could breastfeed your baby too much You'll spoil them. I mean, all of these messages that we're given that are so, we say, unevolutionary, and they're difficult to avoid, you know, and, and put that in the mixture of, you know, we don't have a big sisterhood, you know, we don't have a lot of support for parenting, you know, a lot of us have never held a baby before we actually have our own baby. So, there's a whole cultural missing in there of that helps us to understand like in this very embodied way about labor and birth, like, you know, when it goes back to menstruation and trusting our body. And taking time out and 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 honoring, you know, honoring the feminine. And I mean, I love the work that you do, um, Monica, because it all is, it's all about reclaiming our honor and respect for ourselves as as the keepers of life.
0: That's right. You know, and I was, I couldn't help but think, for example, and I want to give my listeners an example of like kind of what, what was going on in my head, because if you you know there are listeners out there and i'm just imagining <laughs> that there isn't that there isn't one woman that isn't reliving if she's had a if she's had a birth right had a child that she's not reliving that listening to you in this moment you know but for me what i was thinking of was my first birth which was my daughter my labor was so fast and so furious that I literally, from start to finish, gave birth my first birth, it start to finish in three hours. And, you know, it was just, it was, it happened so fast that I wasn't able to get an epidural. And I thought, you know, oh my gosh, like that was, that was so primal, right? Like I, I was trying to find all these words to describe it, but, you know, I also really bonded. I had, like you said, I felt that change in my brain because there I had a midwife, although it was in a hospital, it was for the most part so fast they couldn't even intervene. Do you know what I mean? And then with my son, it was a whole different story. And so I can differentiate between those two births. And with my son, I was induced. I had the not only the Pitocin, I had my water broken, and then I, you know, was given an epidural. And so, and it was a very different experience. And now I'm realizing it was because of the hormonal gaps, right? Now it was my second birth and I knew what to do. But I remember even. I think had my midwife had some of this information that, you know, you've highlighted here, that she might have then encouraged me to go naturally, you know, because it it kind of has different implications when you know the hormonal story. And I feel like this is important for a number of different reasons and if a woman still wants to have a birth and have those interventions and have the support of an epidural that is completely her choice so i want to make sure too that i am honoring every woman's decision because i think that that is you know at the core of my message is that we've each got to trust our own way, our own bodies. And so it's, it's really more for me about creating conversations that offer alternative perspectives and offer different information so that women can make an informed consensual choice. Because that's what I come back to over and over again is this informed consent. Because if we don't know that there is another way, then we're just going to go the one way.
1: Yes. Yeah, I totally agree. And yeah, yeah, we need to know all the choices that there are. And I totally honour whatever choices women make. You know, sometimes women will choose a pre-labor cesarean and honour that choice. Sometimes women will choose a home birth, you know, and honour that choice as well. And an epidural can be a good choice, you know, in some situations as well. And for some women, and I totally honour that. I think the, the message is really, you know, If you're, when these interventions happen or you choose these interventions, pay attention to the hormonal gap. You know, like, for example, there's been a bit of a controversy about epidurals and breastfeeding. You know, does it cause difficulties with breastfeeding? And, you know, with the hormonal disruptions that we've talked about, you could imagine that that might be the case, even though there's not particularly good research in the area. But generally, if you look at all the research, it kind of suggests that it probably does, except in circumstances where, you know, the mother and baby are skin to skin straight after birth and the mother has support for breastfeeding, you know, lactation consultant, etc. So, you know, that's a, that's an example where you might expect hormonal gap to have these consequences and we can give that extra support that that women might need. And a little bit, as you say as well, I think first births are a little more disruptible and, you know, it's true in, in every species, right? <laughs> the first birth is the artist, you know, you haven't been down those pathways in your brain and your hormones before. So, you know, if you've done it before and you've breastfed successfully before, then the chances are that that'll go much more easily in your second birth, you know, and I think that's probably true of the reward and pleasure centers as well. If you've activated them before, they'll probably come online a bit more easily the second time is my own personal opinion or what I observe from my own experience too. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, this has been such a rich, you know, an enlightening conversation, Sarah, I'm so, so appreciative. And I wanted to give you an opportunity to just invite our listeners to find out more about you. Where would you like them to go? What would you like them to know? And anything else you're up to, you know, if you want to take a moment to share that, I would love to have you do it.
1: Yeah, thanks, Monica. So, my website, Sarah Buckley, Sarah with an H.com. I've got lots of um, blogs and information. There's a two-part um, blog about epidurals that mentions this feedback loop that we talked about. I've got a, a great blog on how to have the best cesarean, blogs about induction and the ARRIVE trial. And I'm busy with my PhD, so I haven't been so busy writing blogs, but there will be another one coming up. I've actually written a blog about the first paper we published, which some of what I've um, shared is from, which is about the oxytocin levels and physiological i.e. natural um, labour and birth and we're just writing one about oxytocin levels and birth with interventions with synthetic oxytocin with epidurals and we've also got one with breastfeeding but if you go to my website and click the button that says all the science you'll get a link to lots of those papers which are free downloads as well so if if you're a bit of a birth nerd and want to know all the science behind what I'm saying then I recommend you do that as well and you can also sign up to my email list and get a copy of my ecstatic birth ebook at the same time
0: yeah and and I just want to add too, for my listeners, you know, if you know someone that might appreciate this episode, I also really invite us to share, you know, with grandmothers. Like, I feel like there are many people that influence grandmothers and grandfathers, even, right? that influence. I don't know about you, Sarah, but like, were those some of those, you know, advice is given by those, you know, generations that might not be in the know. And so I think sometimes it can be helpful for us to share information, you know, maybe in different ways that give them an opportunity to consume a conversation or listen into a conversation where they might actually be a bit more supportive. And I know that no matter what, ultimately, we have to make our own choices. But I do believe that the way conversations and things change in the world is by the more we can kind of share what we're learning with others. And certainly, all of us have, you know, people in our lives who are birthing. And so, it's just so important to me that more and more women are really educated and able to reveal for themselves the path that feels the best for them and for their family and their bodies. And so, you know, I just want to put that out there and just, again, circle back and underline all of the valuable data and um, examples that you gave us here, Sarah. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you. And I wish you so much luck with your PhD and all of your future endeavors. Thank you for your work in the world.
1: Thank you so much, Monica. What a pleasure. And uh, yeah, sending lots of good vibes and uh, love to everybody out there, whether you're a birthing mama, whether you've given birth before. um, And yeah, do share this information. Knowledge is power, right?
0: (laughs) Knowledge is power. And for our listeners, I'll be sure to put all of Sarah's links in the show notes. And until next time, More to be revealed. We hope you enjoyed this episode. For more information, please visit us at jointherevelation.com and be sure to download our free gift, subscribe to our mailing list, or leave us a review on iTunes. We thank you for your generous listening. And as always, more to be revealed.